Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you all. Uh, thanks, Ewan, for praying and for reading uh, this passage uh, to us. Um, it's not hard, I don't think, to work out the theme of the verses that Ewan read to us. Statistics are not everything, you know that. But in these 15 verses, that's what Ewan read to us, 15 verses, the word love, in some form or other, appears no less than 27 times. If Jai was here, he'd tell us what that was. It's nearly half, isn't it? Or nearly double. That's why we need Jai. Um, it seems pretty clear in this passage that John is zooming in, honing in on the subject of love. The Beatles famously sang, all you need is, I'm not gonna sing it for you, all you need is love. But I, you know now, those of you who've been here these last few weeks, you know now that this is not a sentimental letter. For John, who's writing this, John was a disciple of Jesus, he's writing this many years later, to a church family in a particular place. This is a serious business. People have left this church and John is writing into what is a sad situation. People are upset, confused, a little bit bewildered. But in this section here, in chapter four, all of the arguments seem to slow down and John's warmth it's been there all the way through this letter, you know that. But here, John's affection begins to shine through. As he says in verse 7, dear friends, it's as if John takes a breath after, all, after piling up all of the stark one-liners that are there in this letter. It, it, here, it seems like he takes a breath. Sometimes, and I think some of you, many of you will know this, sometimes the hardest experiences in life are the ones that lead us to discover the most about the most beautiful truths that we can know. And here, so this letter, is a, is, there's a background here of conflict. There's a background here of things breaking down and yet this here is one of the clearest descriptions in the whole of the bible that we have about the love of god if the bible were a range of mountains this section that you and read to us would be like the mount everest the peak the summit of all of it in a broken human upsetting situation God's love become, comes into sharp focus here I was chatting with Luke in the office this week and um, I said to you last week we were going to do verse 7 to the end of the chapter that's what you and read for us but we were talking in the office and this, this section is so good that we've decided to split it and I'm just going to spend some time with you thinking about verses uh, 7 to 12, six verses here. And next week, Luke's going to look at 
the, verse 13 to the end, and maybe into chapter 5 as well. I have three simple headings. If you've got one of the programs, you'll, you'll have them on there. Three simple headings to take these six verses in two pairs. First of all, God is the ultimate source of real love. Secondly, God's love defines what true love really is. And last of all, and we'll be brief with the last point, God invites us to join in. So three simple points, six verses, two pairs. Let's uh, kick off with number one. God is the ultimate source of love. Let's just look. It'd be great if you have a Bible open to look at these verses. Verse 7, John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The reason John gives for the command to these readers to love one another is simply that love comes from God. I think straight away that seems like a strange way to put things. Um, love one another sounds like conjure up love in your heart for other people. It sounds like it should start with us. It's a command, after all, love one another. But John clarifies that the love with which we are meant to love one another doesn't originate in us, but comes from another place. Love comes from God. And then John underlines it both positively and negatively. John says that someone who loves properly must have been born of God and must know what God is really like. And he contrasts that by saying that the person who doesn't love can't possibly know God or what he's really like. Why? Because God is love. Last year, some of you know that we went on holiday to Portugal for a week. Well, we went to a little island near Portugal, Portuguese island. We had a lot of fun as a family on a beautiful beach on this island. I think this beach was like nine miles long or something on the south of this island. We were right in the middle. And um, yeah, we're playing keep up with volleyballs in the sea trying to break our family record. We do it every summer if there's a sea and it's warm enough to go in. We have one of those little wobobos, are you familiar with those? Where you can like skim them across the surface of the water. Some some days, very windy, it was a little island, the waves were so big and it was just fun to like get thrown around by the waves. Sun's beating down, it was very hot, beautiful time. Simple pleasures. But I was, as I was preparing this, I was imagining me walking down the beach and all of our kids are in the sea and they're playing keep up with the volleyball or whatever they're doing and, and they're fooling around and I walk down to the water's edge and say, hey, kids, get wet. And they look at me as if I've gone mad because they're in the sea. How could they not be wet if they're in the sea? I, I think that conveys something of what John is trying to convey 
to us in this section. This is a command, love one another. But in a way, it's not a command. It's, it's more of an assumption. It's more of a consequence. Saying, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. It's like saying, get wet to someone who's already in the sea. Because the truth is that knowing God brings us into the sphere of love. If you truly know this God that John knows, you're breathing different air to everyone else. If you truly know this God that John knows here, you're immersed in something that this world longs for but doesn't understand. In a way, if you know this God that John knows, you are already saturated in and immersed in his grace and love and kindness. And John is suggesting that the natural consequence of living in that sphere, the natural consequence of knowing this God is that you do love and you will love one another because you've experienced the reality of God's love in your heart and life. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Excuse me. This is why throughout this letter, John says that no individual can claim to know God if they don't love other people. John Stott, famous British uh, minister, author, he wrote a commentary on, on 1 John, and he says that for a loveless person, a person who doesn't love other people, to, to claim to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we can't speak. It's like claiming to have been born of parents who we don't look like or resemble in any way. So the love with which we are called to love one another is not our own puny, desperate, sometimes selfish love. We're called to love one another with a different kind of love that we have experienced and received. One writer says, John is not commanding us to create or to develop a quantity of love. Rather, we are to love outwardly towards other people what we've received personally in our belovedness from God. I just realized I'm meant to be flicking these slides on. There you go. You've got it on the programs anyway. Many religions have sought to try and define God and explain the nature of God. But there are three words here at the end of verse 8 that contain rich truth. God is love. 
The phrase actually comes twice in this passage. It's there at the end of verse 8, as we said. And it also comes in the middle of verse 16, a little lower down. God is love. John could have said, God loves us. That would be true. But that would describe something that God is doing rather than describing something that God is. When John says God is love, he's telling us that love is part of the essential nature of God. And I just want to pause here and we're going to reflect on four things that flow from that. Here's the first. If God is love, that means that everything God does is loving. God's love is behind everything that he does. Love isn't one of God's characteristics that competes with all the others. Every other thing that God does flows from the fact that underneath it all, he is a loving God. One commentator on this passage writes that saying God loves might stand alongside other statements such as God creates. God rules. God judges. That is to say, it means that love is one of his activities. But to say that God is love implies that all of his activity is loving activity, even his judgment. If God creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is the expression of his nature, which is to love. Some people have a hard time when they come to the Bible and they read of God, God's justice. God's anger, even. But nowhere in the Bible does it say God is anger. Anger doesn't describe his essential nature. The, the attribute of anger actually only arises because God loves. In the same way that we would be angry if someone hurt someone that we loved. God loves what is good and therefore hates what is evil and destructive. So God is love, first of all, means that everything God does is loving. Secondly, God is love means that no one can force God to love. God's love cannot be and doesn't need to be dragged out of him. Um... There's, there's nothing or no one outside of God that can say to God, hey, God, you ought to love because that's the right thing to do. God's love is never something that he's forced to do by someone compelling him to do it. God is love, the text says. God's love comes from within himself freely 
One writer says, absolutely spontaneously. When God loves, he isn't keeping some kind of rule. He's just being himself. God never loves because he has to, but always because he wants to. By definition, God can do whatever he likes. But what a truth this is. What would you do if you could do whatever you liked? The only one who could really, really do whatever he liked is always and has always been and will always be love. God doesn't love because he has to, but because it's his nature. And so it always comes from within himself. There's a big clue here, I, I think, surely, as to what constitutes true religion, even true life. Any idea or system or religion or philosophy that seeks to compel others to love as if love can be an externally imposed moral obligation comes up against this it is in the very nature of love that it must be free freely given if it isn't freely given it isn't love love can't be forced otherwise it wouldn't really be love Fairly, God is love means and this is a bit more personal it can never be based on something in us when the Bible says God is love that is not a response to something lovable in us to say God is love means that his love always comes first God isn't waiting for something else to happen to trigger him being loving. As the sun shines, so God loves. Human love comes second in the sense that it's usually defined and described in terms of response to something desirable in the situation or object or person. I love her because she's beautiful. I love him because he's handsome. I love her because she's smart. I love him because he's rich. Our love is always a response love. But God's love comes first. It creates value in its object, whether there's any intrinsic value there or not. The sun shines on the earth not because the earth is the earth, but because the sun is the sun. And God loves you and me, not because we are we, but because he is him. Just, I don't know if that even makes sense, but you know the point I'm making. What a burden this takes off our shoulders. So often we live as if God is not love, and that somehow we have to persuade this God who isn't loved to actually love us. And it's the wrong way around. 
God does not love us because of what we're like. He loves us because of what he is like. And let me, let me give you one, a fourth one before we move on. And uh, it's a good leading to our second point. God defines love. Uh, let me explain it this way. I was chatting to someone. Oh, man, I think it might have been two or three years ago. But over a period of two or three months, this person was very interested in the Bible and Christianity, very open to explore and to talk. But the thing we kept coming back to in our conversations was the idea that the most important thing was love. That was the supreme thing. Love was the most important thing. And I realize now that what this person really wanted to say was the opposite of what this text says. I think this person wanted to say, love is God. John doesn't invite his readers here to reverse this sentence and conclude that love is God. John isn't teaching that our theory about love is then projected onto God and that's what defines God. There's a thing over here called love and that's what God must be like. We, we can't start with something that we call love or that we think is love and use that to define God. One writer says, love does not describe the fullness of God, but God defines the fullness of love. God is love. And that, that brings us to our second heading, God, God's love defines real love. So here's the second pair of verses, 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 seem to say the same thing. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. These two verses are saying something very similar, but subtly different and complementary. Let, let me, um, I'll put them both on. Verse, verse 9 is talking about God's, God reveals love. I think verse 10 is more explicit that God does love. So in verse 9, we read it there a moment ago, this is how God showed his love among us. You get that. The assumption is, the, the idea here is that love is something that was there in God all the time. And now this is how God has showed the love that was already there and revealed it publicly, openly, shown what it, that it was there all along. Love is not abstract or theoretical anymore. We don't need to guess what it looks like. God's love has legs and feet and hands and arms and a face. How did God show his love among us? Verse 9 says, He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The NRV 
here uses this phrase, one and only son. The word behind that is a Greek word, monogenus. Mono means one. Genus means kind or type or category. Monogenus means one of a kind, completely unique, in a category all by himself. Jesus is the one and only Son of the Father. That means that there's no gift that God could have given to us that is more valuable or more precious or more costly than him. This is how we know what love is. God gives you Jesus, his one and only son. He gives him to you. The idea here is that the reason Jesus comes into the world at all is because there is already love in the heart of a father for the world. God is love and so he sends, he gives. And God's loving aim here, John says, he sent us his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. God's loving aim here is for us to live life to the full through Jesus. Love is therefore not defined here primarily as a feeling or an idea. One writer says love is the event in which God spoke for himself in human history by his son. God sending his son in this way reveals that true love, real love, involves both sacrificial giving for the benefit of the other. That's what's going on here. That's what God's love led him to do. He sent his one and only son so that we might live through him. And that's how we know what love really is. That's what John says here. But there's more. God also does love. I didn't know how to say that. God there's something here that's more explicit than just revealing love. So verse 10, look with me. John says, this is love. And he gives the negative first. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So now John is thinking about the cross where Jesus died. Now, I think it's very easy for us to have the idea that the cross where Jesus died is basically a great example of the sacrificial love that God has. Jesus himself said, actually, we often read this when it's like the remembrance uh, in November 
Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. John's Gospel, chapter 15. So the idea of this being an example is partly true, but the cross would be ridiculous if it were merely an example. I've given some of you this illustration before, but imagine if Jane and I were walking along the side of the river and uh, Jane turned to me and said, Ian, how can I know that you really love me? It's a tough question when a wife asks that. How can I know that you really love me? And my response is to jump into the river and drown myself. And as I go down for the last time, I shout, I love you. I, I think that would be deeply traumatic for me and for Jane. But let's imagine we change the scene a little. Let's imagine that Jane fell into the river and I jumped in and saved her. But as I saved her and pushed her towards the bank, the current swept me away and I lost my life in order to save hers. That would be different, wouldn't it? That would be heroic. There's something glorious about someone giving their life to save someone else's. This is true. When you think about the cross where Jesus dies, think about this. If the cross is basically Jesus killing himself, allowing himself to be killed, just to prove and give an example of his love, that would be tragic and ridiculous. But if his death on the cross is actually achieving something, then it becomes truly glorious. Remember that people have left this church that John's writing to, and the reason they've left is because they were seeking a kind of salvation by being more intelligent and more enlightened than the ones who had stayed behind. What, what these ones who'd left really wanted was a Christless, painless, tearless version of Christianity. They wanted to be special, but on their own terms. And as we've seen through the whole letter of 1 John, they could not accept that Jesus Christ had come to this world in the flesh to die on a cross to save us from our sins. They, they wanted to be special, but they wanted to bypass Jesus. Do you know what really defines how special someone is? It, it's, one of the things that defines how special someone is is when you realize who loves them. When you realize that someone is loved by someone else, there's, there's something about that that makes a person special. 
human beings have been created in the image of God and the thing that makes individual people special is that God is love. Every person is precious in that sense. But here, here we're seeing an even greater truth than that general truth, that God puts a value on people. God puts a value on you. Our value to God is the life of his one and only son. Listen, the gospel, the, the Christian message, the gospel, it tells us that we are unworthy, but we're not worthless. There's a big difference. Our sins are many, but God sees us as precious to him. And as John says here, God sends his one and only son to save us from our sins. I love the fact that John includes himself in that. God has sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, he says, not for your sins, but for our sins. I was reading recently in another part of the Bible it's a letter that Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 2 4 and 5 and, and it really struck me powerfully this because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead and it was that little phrase God who is rich in mercy there's a lot of people I can think of who are rich in other ways, uh, money, Roman Abramovich, Bill Gates, you, you can think of others who have more money than they could even know what they could do with it. They're rich in money. But when you talk about mercy and kindness and love, no one is richer than God. He is the Roman Abramovich of mercy. He's the Bill Gates of kindness. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. The idea of sacrifice here is important. Ancient religions often involved the worshipper making sacrifices to appease the anger of their gods. I suppose more modern religions claim to be less bloodthirsty and the idea is that we atone for our sins by doing good works but in all of these ways all the time religion is saying to us it is always about us reaching out and up to try and appease God and atone for our sins and find him but here everything is the other way around. God in his great mercy, the Roman Abramovich of mercy, isn't waiting for worshippers to make sacrifices to him. He sends the sacrifice for them. And who is the sacrifice? His one and only son, Jesus. God sends Jesus to die. 
our sin separates us from a holy God. In our natural state, we would be standing or sitting or lying underneath his righteous anger. And the reason he's angry is because he loves, not because he's some kind of tyrant. And yet this God is a loving father who sends Jesus, his one and only son, to stand in our shoes and to bear our sins and to turn away God's righteous anger away from us. God sent his son so that the sword of his righteous justice would fall on him and be diverted away from us. Jesus came lovingly to take the consequences of our failure on himself. The love of God is not sentimental or soft. It's way better than that. God's love leads him to take our sin and failure seriously and then to get rid of it. By laying it on the shoulders of his son. Far from condoning our sin, the love of God has found a way to expose it because he is light and to consume it because he is fire, but without destroying the sinner but rather saving them. This is the Christian gospel. Verse 14 in this chapter, John says, we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So I, I want to say to you, the love of God is great in every possible way. It's great because it's always free and spontaneous. It comes from within himself. It's great because it involved him giving the very best he could give. It's great because of what it cost him. The death of his one and only son. But is it not great too? because of who his love is given to. This is a love that's expressed to people like you and me who don't deserve it. The origin of love lies beyond human effort and initiative. Left to ourselves, we would not love him. We would hate him and oppose him it took his boundless sacrificial love to break our hearts of stone and bring us to himself. Listen, I don't want to bang on about God's love for an hour or whatever it is and you go home thinking, so what? The call here to every single one of us is to know it and to believe it 
and to take this truth deeply into our hearts and souls and to allow the warmth of his divine, infinite love to melt our selfishness and fear away. In the late 1800s, there was a great British preacher in London called Charles Spurgeon. When he preached in London, in the 1800s, the traffic stopped because thousands of people were flocking to hear him. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about this passage. What What have we been talking about? It's God's love to us. Get the thought into your head a minute. God loves me. He does not merely bear with me or think of me or feed me. He loves me. Who is it that loves you? God, the maker of heaven and earth, the almighty, the all in all. Does he love me? Even he? If all the men and all the angels and all the living creatures that are before the throne of God in heaven loved me, it would be nothing compared to this. The infinite loves me. And who is it? Who is it that he loves? Me. The text says, us, we love him because he first loved. But this is the personal point. He loves me, an insignificant nobody, full of sin, who deserved to be in hell, who loves him so little in return. God loves me. I said we'd be brief. Last point. God invites us to join in. Last pair of verses, verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I think this is where we see that this is not just about us copying or imitating something, that these verses are about us participating in something. When John says in verse 12 that God's love is made complete in us, I think what John is saying there is that the love of God has achieved its desired effect. It's come to fruition. It's broken down barriers. It's melted hearts. It's come to maturity and borne fruit in the lives of people. It's made complete in that sense. I find it striking here that John doesn't say, since God so loved us, we also ought to love him. It's almost as if the loving God part is a given. To really know him is to love him. But the concrete evidence that we know him and love him is that we love one another. And in verse 12, John emphasizes that although no one has ever seen God, when you see this kind of love spreading, what you're actually seeing 
is God supernaturally at work in people's hearts. The ones who had left this church believed that the pinnacle of spiritual experience was visions and mystery and excitement. And John says, hold on a minute. The real pinnacle is ordinary, practical, faithful, loving relationships. That is where God lives and makes his home. So the gospel can never be escapism. The gospel is not a retreat from the world into some kind of mysticism. The gospel calls us to dive into the world in practical love. We're done. Let me give you one last quotation. God desires that we become like him. And we are never more like him than when we love others. One of the evidences of spiritual maturity is love. The evidence of the genuine Christian life is love. Your spiritual maturity is not measured by your age. It isn't measured by how long you've been a Christian. It isn't measured by how long you've been a church member. It isn't measured by how much Bible knowledge you have. It isn't measured by your level of service within the church. It is measured by your love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, said Jesus. If you have love for one another.